Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you with us as we conclude our series at the movies. This week, Pastor to Youth Dave Sauer shows us some faith lessons in The Expendables as we look at the story of the unmerciful servant. Dave has us look at Jesus' disciples and how, even though they were generally not well liked by the people of their day, Jesus saw the best in them. Taking a look at the disciples, we're reminded that being the greatest doesn't mean that you have to be the leader or person in charge. Listen as Dave gives us some pointers on how to be great. Well, I don't know about you guys, but uh, there are some pretty amazing sequels that are coming out this year and already came out. How many of you guys seen, have seen the Star Wars sequel? Right? By the way, my name is Dave Sauer, and I'm the student pastor here at Bay Hills, and they let me up here once in a while, and then they reel me off, so just be prepared. Um, hey, but it's exciting, because I was looking at Rolling Stone magazine, and they did a reader poll of the five worst sequels of all time. And uh, before I get going, though, on that, uh, anybody have the worst sequel they want to share with the whole group? No one. Okay. Oh, you said Star Trek Four. I totally agree. That was like the most awful sequel ever. Over here. Matrix 2. Yeah, I, right there. I see that. Oh, heads up. Yeah, catch that, Stephanie. Okay. And, uh, okay, over, over here. Yeah, pre, oh, you're, you're gonna love the list. Okay. Anybody, anybody else? I got one more. Were, what? Vacation. Like the, like European vacation? Yeah, that was awful too. European vacation. Wasn't even the same cast. Well, I did a, I did a um, recent uh, study on this, and it was a very in-depth biblical study, and Rolling Stone Magazine came up with this list. Um, Rolling Stone Magazine had a, did a poll of their readers, and this is what they came up with. The five worst sequels of all time. Number five is Grease 2, right? Oh, like everybody's like, oh, I remember that. It was awful. Yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer actually had a nose then. Um, just saying. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Alien Skulls. If you haven't seen it, I just blew the whole plot out of the water, okay? Uh, that's, that was an awful sequel. I was so disappointed. There was so much hope because Shia LaBeouf was in that movie, and it was going to be good. Um, Godfather 3, believe it or not, made the list of the top five all-time words. Anybody agree with that one? Now, a lot of people don't. I mean, if you're a huge Godfather fan, I guess you could. I actually liked it. Um, just saying. This was a movie I, sh- I was like, don't touch the original. You can't mess with Caddyshack. It's, an or- it's, such a, it's a classic. But they did. Second worst sequel of all time. And from this side over here that said this movie, episode one of Phantom Menace, more of a prequel. That was the number one worst movie, sequel, prequel, according to the, all the uh, l- listeners or readers of Rolling Stone magazine. Isn't that, but isn't that true? Like, oh, George Lucas, I love you, but look what you did. Oh, Jar Jar Binks, he ruined the whole thing. So today, we're going to be kind of talking about the unmerciful, unmerciful servant, but I need to do it as kind of a prequel slash original before I actually get to the parable itself. Uh, and I thought I'd do that through a Bay Hills kind of way. And we're, you know, this is Bay Hills, so I thought I'd use the Expendables trilogy as our, as our movie theme today. And all the guys are like, yes. And all the girls are like, oh, great. My husband watched that thing. So 
What I, you know, the expendables are a bunch of guys. They're a bunch of misfits, a bunch of rabble rousers. They're mercenaries, not missionaries, mercenaries that come together and they, they got it. They're going to save the world in certain things. You know, they're going to, they're going to rescue the billionaire. They're going to take out the bad guy. And that's the expendables kind of idea. It's a big shoot 'em up, bang, bang guy kind of movie. Kind of like the disciples were. They were a bunch of misfits, a bunch of missionaries, mercenaries. They were the outcasts. They weren't wanted. And Jesus picked them out. So I want you to watch this quick trailer of The Expendables. Wow, that's intense. You guys, wow, this is Bay Hills. I like this church. They're going to show cool movies. You know, it's interesting because um, when we look at the story of, of the disciples, they really were a bunch of guys that nobody wanted. And Jesus saw the best in them. Um, so today I kind of want to talk about this story about the unmerciful servant. And, and really with this kind of the story starts out where Peter is walking with Jesus, kind of pulls Jesus aside and says, you know, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my, my brother or, or sister? And, and I, I thought, you know, I need to give you guys a little bit more of the backstory of why Peter did that, of the original movie maybe. And, and so in your notes, you're going to see some of us bouncing around a little bit today because this first point, you know, it's, it's those closest to us can bring out, you know, and I'll give it to you because I'm going to go over it later, the best and the worst in us. But I need to, I need to go Matthew 18. We need to actually kind of rewind this sequel a little bit and go back to the original and kind of look at why Peter pulled Jesus aside and asked him this pivotal question that changed the, the, the Christian faith, in my opinion. This was huge, what he asked. Why did he ask it? So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 9. Now, the story of the, the, the unmerciful servant is in Matthew chapter 18, if you want to sneak over there. But Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to start out, because I need to kind of rewind this story a little bit. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Now what happened here, what led to this, was that there were three guys up on the mountain with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, and they saw this cool thing happen, Mount of Transfiguration. These, these Old Testament cool guys came in and they, they appeared, you know, Moses and Elijah, and they're like, oh, and it was just, wow, this is crazy. Can we stay here? And they said, no, we've got to go off the mountain. In fact, you saw the most amazing thing ever. Jesus was all glowing and white. And you can't tell anybody what happened. Well, Peter, James, and John, if you look at the listing of the disciples, they are always listed first, Peter, James, and John. You know, biblical scholars will tell us that they're they were Jesus' kind of inner, inner circle. They were his favorite, if you will, even though Jesus didn't really have favorites, but they would, you know, be like, they're, they're the ones closest to Jesus. So then they come off the mountain and they're all together and they're walking to Capernaum and Peter, James, and John can't say a thing. Now, James and John are brothers, okay? Follow me on this. James and John are the sons of thunder. They're brothers. Peter has a brother, Andrew, who's also a disciple. And can you imagine... Two brothers see this and your, and your brother didn't and you're, you're, you're walking with them and you can't say anything and they're talking about how cool they are. And you know how guys are, right? We all want to one-up each other. So Peter, James, and John have this amazing one-up story they can't share, but all the other disciples are one-upping each other. They're like, what's up, bro? Hey, did you, did you hear what happened? Yeah, I'm like, oh, I can't, we can't say anything. Don't tell anybody. But everybody else is like, you know, I'm, I, I can shoot three-pointers way better than you. I can hit seven out of ten. Steph Curry's got nothing on me right? 
I, I, yeah, but I can kick a 48-yard field goal with my eyes closed with my left foot, right? Guys are that way, aren't we? We like to banter, debate. We like to one-up each other. We like to, my, you should have seen the fish I caught. It was this big. I'd love to see it. Did you take a picture? Yeah, I took a picture of it. Can I come over to your house and see it? No, uh, all my pictures got burned up in the house fire. Right? That's how we are as, as men. We like to banter. We like to one-up each other. And the disciples are probably not much different based on this. That word argue there is actually, that they were arguing. That word argue is actually debating or bantering or one-upping. That's what that word means. You know, there's a great scene in this, in this movie, The Expendables, where the guys are in a bar and they're kind of one up in each other and it's this knife throwing scene and they're like, you know, who, who can get it the closest to the bullseye? And it's a good depiction, in my opinion, of how guys are. We love to one up each other. We love to nudge each other a little bit. But that's not necessarily always good. Check out this movie clip. Of course, he throws it and hits the bullseye and everybody's, you know, wins and they, they all go home happily ever after and read their Bibles. Um, <laughs> but arguing and debating and one-upping, you know, it really is, it's, it's kind of that thing that we do as guys and, and you know it and we like to do it. But really, I want to point out in verse 34 what happens when Jesus, because Jesus asked them what they're arguing about. And here's what happens in verse 34. He says, it says, but they kept, they kept quiet. Because on the way they had argued, they kept quiet. They knew they were guilty. They knew what they were doing had been taken a little bit too far. They had maybe done something that had hurt each other's feelings. They, they had done something, you know, that one up turns to an insult and turns to sarcasm and turns to just maybe even a f- almost physical where they were ready just to fight each other, but they had to hold it together because they're walking with Jesus, right? It's like, oh, I'm walking with Jesus. I better not fight because Jesus really frowns on that. But, but they were arguing, it's their attitude, it was their heart that was coming out. And Jesus, what does he look at? Our heart, our attitude. And they were arguing about who's the greatest. It's this whole side of arrogance thing. They were all like, well, I, I'm better than you are. And, and I can just imagine Peter, James, and John kind of sitting there going, yeah, you don't know what we know. We're actually all, we're, we're better than all y'all. Because <laughs> we got to see something you didn't get to see. And we can't even talk about it. That's how cool it is. But debating and one-upping can bring out the worst in us. Debating and one-upping can bring out the worst in us. Especially guys, it can bring out the worst in us. Because what happens is we go back and we, we, we do, we start, we start getting a little sarcasm in, in our tone. And then we start getting a little anger in our tone. And then all of a sudden we start getting angry. And that anger and that frustration and the worst side of us will come out. In fact, in your notes, I want you to circle that if you're a guy in here. Debating and one-upping can bring out the worst in us. Now, I agree. I think, I think being competitive, you're thinking, well, I'm very competitive. Being competitive is a good thing. But taking your competition to a level of insult or sarcasm to that point where it's destructive is not. So debating and one-upping can bring out the worst in us. Verse 35, it says this, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. See, he's telling them what it means to be the greatest. He's laying it out for him. Here's what it means to be the greatest. You want to be the greatest? Anyone that wants to be first, you must be last and servant of all. 
Now, I, I don't know about you guys, but the thing I loved about the Expendables, and if you're a guy in here and you've seen it, if you're a gal in here and you've seen it, you and my wife need to talk because she loves these kind of movies. Like, she'll watch Rambo with me. Talk about a great wife. She'll sit down and watch Rambo. It's awesome. I'm like, what do you want to watch tonight? She's like, Rambo, First Blood. I'm like, really? Wow. <laughs> this is going to be a great night. But in the movie, you have Sly Stallone, you have uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. In one of them, you have Jean-Claude Van Damme. You have, I mean, my favorite, Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris is in one of the Expendable movies, Expendables 2. And in fact, it, it's so, I got to share this with you. There used to be a street named Chuck Norris. But they changed this name because nobody would cross it. <laughs> and if they crossed it, they would die. <laughs> Chuck Norris has already been to Mars. Did you guys know that? Chuck Norris has already been to Mars. That's why there's no signs of life form on Mars. Fear of spiders, arachnophobia. Fear of tight spaces, claustrophobia. Fear of Chuck Norris, logic. There's a great scene in the movie. And the thing I love about Chuck Norris, by the way, Chuck Norris is a believer and he's not in the Hollywood scene. He actually has a home in Grass Valley. If you guys want to go try to find it and Google it and he'll send you to all kinds of crazy places. Believe me, I've tried. Um, I am a stalker, whoever said that. It's just true. I, I, I've never done those Hollywood tours, but I do want to. Uh, but the thing I love about Chuck Norris is Chuck Norris is, is a really humble human being. I've heard him speak at different Christian events before, and he's just a humble guy. He doesn't need the spotlight, even though he could have it everywhere he goes. There's a great scene in the movie where the, these guys are pinned down. They're being attacked by the bad guys. They're getting shot up. I couldn't show that scene. I had to edit all of it out because it was way too bloody to show at church. And they like, who's doing this? Who's ta- who's? And, they, and somebody comes in and takes out all the bad guys. And they're like, who does this? This is amazing. Who takes out all the bad guys? And then this is what happens. Chuck Norris is awesome. But the, the thing about that is that, you know, the Bible really is, is clear on this. Being, being the greatest doesn't mean that you have to be the leader. You know, Chuck Norris came in and wiped everybody out. He didn't need all the glory. He didn't need all the accolades. He didn't need a trophy. He didn't need to be in charge of that mercenary group. He was like, yeah, this is what I do. I just come in and do this and then I'm off. Being the greatest doesn't mean we have to always be the person in charge. Sometimes, I think more often than not, it's good to give other people the opportunity to be in charge. It's, it's a good thing to give other people the opportunity to, to take over a role. My mom told me a story about a pastor that was at their church and, and he's a, a, a good man and, and he, was, he was having you know, just a lot of stress and, and, the, and part of his issue was he wasn't delegating. He wasn't letting other people do anything. So he was doing all the hospital visits, all the weddings, all the funerals, all the, he was overseeing all the ministries. And what happened? He, he just got burned out. He had to lead everything. Being the greatest doesn't mean we always have to be the leader. In fact, I want to show you a little bit of what Mark 9.35 says. Again, I was sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be very last and servant of all. Very last, less than, least of. Servant of all means leader, in charge. In other words, you're leading from here instead of here. You're leading from up, leading up instead of thumbing it down. The greater we are, the lesser we must become. The greater we are, the lesser we must become. We look at this, we look at this text again and Jesus uses this word servant. 
Now, in biblical terms, most of us see that word servant, and we've probably heard Dave give a message about being a doulos. Doulos is a, is a bond servant. If you look at it from a, from a nautical perspective, a, a bond servant was the person at the bottom of the ship that would clean out the poop deck. He was the lowest of the low. He was a slave. But that's not what this word is. That word servant actually means is diakonos, which is the Greek word that means leader or deacon, as we know it in churchy terms, church leader. But Jesus is saying there is in order to be a leader, a deacon or somebody in charge, you actually have to become the lesser. You really need to be a doulos. In fact, the New Testament, every author of the New Testament, I found this very fascinating. Every author of the New Testament considers themselves and calls themselves a servant, a bond servant, a doulos of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that fascinating? Paul said it. James said it. Jesus' half-brother. The author of Hebrews said it. Matthew said it. Mark said it. Luke said it. The apostle John said it. That they were doulos. They were slaves to Jesus. But yet, what does Jesus call them? He calls them leaders. So now all of that backstory, all of that history of where it led to, Jesus talking to these guys leads to this point where he gives this message about the unmerciful servant. And that's where Peter comes to him, pulls him aside, says, Jesus, I need to ask you this question. I need to ask you this question. So Matthew 18. So this is when you're going to take your Bibles and you're going to make a left-hand turn and go from Mark back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. And this is actually now the beginning of my message. So welcome to Bay Hills. We're going to be showing you clips from the Expendables today, rated PG, hopefully. Um, No, anyway, Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Up to seven times? Peter's like, hey, my brother's working with me. He's ticking me off, quite frankly. He's family. And we all know how that is, right? Family. I have, by the way, I have four older sisters and five daughters. Okay? First service actually had a bigger sigh than second service. They're like, oh. That's why I have no hair. <laughs> except on my back. Oh, wait, that's too much information for church. Sorry. But here's the thing. My sisters, especially my sister that's closest to me in age, used to drive me insane. She would take lipstick. I'm a five-year-old kid, a boy, manly. I had a BB gun. And she put lipstick on me at five years old. My mom doesn't know this story. I'm about to tell it in front of the entire church, and my mom is sitting here. My sister had a party when my parents were gone. By the way, did you know that? Um, I was the little annoying brother that had lipstick put on them, payback. <laughs> I snuck up behind my house. We had a big deck. All these high school kids were partying, partying, mother. I took took my BB gun out. My sister's boyfriend, his name was Matt. I didn't like him. (laughs) He thought he got stung by a bee. It was so awesome. Totally got away with it too. Even to this day, that's the first time other than youth group I've told this story and my mom is here. So, but isn't it true the people closest to us 
Like they frustrate us. And Peter is probably frustrated with his brother, family, friends, frustration. But they also, the thing I love about my sisters is they can also bring out the finest, the best in me. Just like Andrew probably was bringing out the best in Peter. He's like, Jesus, I know he's my brother. So I should probably forgive him. Not three times like Jewish law says, but how about I'll double it plus one, seven times, seven times. And this is really where we fill in that first point in your, if you didn't get this the first time, those closest to us bring out the best and the worst in us. My sister brought out the worst in me because I was up for revenge and payback. But you know, she also brought out the best in me many, many times. When I had hair, she would cut it for free, which was awesome. I remember those days of luscious fingers running through my hair. It was incredible. The good old days. But here's the thing. It goes on. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times I forgive my brother. How we abandon, how we abandon the offense isn't a regulation. See, Peter wants to know how he can abandon the offense. It's not a regulation. Jesus doesn't come back and say, well, you need to do it 22 times. And on the 22nd time, you actually need to write a letter of forgiveness to him. And it's not a regulation. It's a reflection, a reflection of our heart. How we abandon the offense isn't a regulation. It's a reflection. And, And really what Jesus is concerned about is the who Because if we just go by the regulation, if we just go by the, the laundry list of laws, then it's always the how. But what Jesus is concerned about is the who. Who sins against me? His brother sinned against him. And Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. Forgive him forever. He's your brother. He's your sister. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're your neighbor. They're your friend. See, the more we are offended, the more we need to abandon. The more we're offended, the more we need to... The the word forgiveness means abandon. It means we need to run away from the offense, not worry about it, let it go, forget about it, move on from it. But for most of us, the more we are offended, the more we hold on to bitterness the more we hold on to anger, the more we hold on to frustration, the more we hold on to pride, the more we are offended, the more we need to abandon. And then Jesus says this, therefore. Anytime Jesus says, therefore, we need to really, really listen carefully because now he's going to tell an amazing story and he's tying it all together. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold or 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he, and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. 
Now, I want to point out that I have some of these words highlighted, 10,000 bags of gold, because it's important for us to know, in fact, you can go to that next screen, Scott, it's important for us to know the ginormous amount 10,000 bags of gold was. Now, keep in mind, the gross domestic product or the DM, the, 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 the national sales of those days, the collect, what was collected for tax purposes and all those things was about 900 bags of gold or 900 talents total for the entire nation. Okay? Think about that. 10,000 was basically the biggest number they had back in those days. 10,000 was the biggest. It was a, 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 it was a, a number that was so ginormous that it couldn't be paid back. It was immeasurable. It was unpayable. And the only way that the master could get it all back is, okay, I'm going to take your wife. I'm going to take your firstborn, your secondborn, and your thirdborn. And I know some of you are thinking, well, that doesn't sound like a bad deal. Um, I'm going to take everything you have and sell it, and that's how you're going to be pay back the debt. And you're still going to spend the rest of your life in prison. And what, is, what does the guy do? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Our debt is so immeasurable. Our debt is so immeasurable. It should cost us everything. We're sinners. We're forgiven by a God who sent his son to die for us on a cross. We should die every time that he did it for us. It should cost us everything to repay. I want you to circle that word cost and think about it. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, God, forgave you. As Christ forgave us, we need to forgive others. We'll continue on. Verse 26, At this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. He took pity on him. He canceled him. The guy was begging him. In fact, if you look at that word and you, and you dissect it, it actually means he was laying down prostrate on the ground. Is it prostrate or prostrate? Which one's the... Pro- okay, yeah, that one. And he's laying down on the ground and he's, and he's like, please forgive me everything. I, do, I don't have the money to pay you back, but I promise I'll pay you back someday. And he's like, nope, I will cancel. I will forgive the entire thing. And you'd think the guy would go out and have a celebration. He'd party. He'd be like, yes, this is awesome. Let's do this. Oh, No, but what does he do? He goes out and instead of partying, this is what he did. He went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, about a hundred days worth of work. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back everything you owe me. Pay back everything he demanded. Now, I have that word choke highlighted and, and kind of in, exploded out and bigger and, because I want to point that out to you. That word choke actually means, in the original translation, is the word for drowning. This guy went to this servant. The guy said, no, I'm not, I can't pay you back. Give me some time. Please, you know. I, and he starts waterboarding him, torturing him, choking him, taking him, I need you to pay me back. I don't want to pay you back now. I don't know what to take you back now. It wasn't baptism. He was serious. He wanted his money and he wanted it now. And that servant fell to his knees. Same position. He actually begged him. Same thing. He, he was laying flat. He was like, please, please. 
So be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debt. See, being forgiven without forgiving leads to destruction. Being forgiven without forgiving leads to destruction. In our movie today, The, the Expendables, there's this scene where Dolph Lundgren and, and Jet Li, um, are, they got in a big fight, and Dolph Lundgren wouldn't forgive Jet Li, and they start this huge car chase scene, and it's really cool, and there's lots of gunfire and all that, and then they get to this warehouse where the cars all crash, and they're going to settle this like men. Check this clip out. So they got in this big fight. Sly Stallone saw it. He was outraged. So he, instead of seeing both of his friends die, he shot Dolph Lundgren. Now, Dolph lives, if you don't know that, and you haven't seen the movies. He lives. Everything's okay. Um, and you'll see that the next clip in just a little bit. But here's what happens in, in, in the story of the unmerciful servant. Is when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. They were upset. That word outraged actually means grieving or grieved. It hurt, it hurt them to see this guy who was forgiven of so much, hold so much grudge and bitterness and anger and hatred in his heart. It made them sad and upset. And then when he did what he did and, they, and he wouldn't stop and they tried to stop him, I can imagine they were like, please stop, don't do this. And they finally said, you know what? We're going to take this into our own hands and we're going to go and we're going to take it to the master. See, I think so often we want the revenge. We want to do it our way. We want to take justice into our own hands instead of saying, God, this is yours. You need to be the one that takes this justice. You need to be the one that takes the revenge. See, we need to take our injustice to God. We need to take it to him. I actually believe that, that if, if we, we saw this story back then, Jesus had just got done telling the story about how to deal with forgiveness and how to approach somebody. I believe they probably did it that way. They went to him and said, hey, this is wrong. They took somebody else and said, hey, this is wrong. They took somebody else and said, hey. And then they said, you know what? You're not listening. You won't, you won't change. You won't go and, and forgive this person. So we're just going to take it to God. We're going to take it to the king. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all your debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on, the fellow, on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? See, canceled. The king forgave all of his debt. But the other servant showed no mercy. He showed no forgiveness. It's that forgave versus forgiven. Where are we at with that? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. That word jailer actually does mean torturer. So the guy probably got thrown in jail and they waterboarded him. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of us unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. Man, I... I, I had a little eye-opening moment when I read that is all of a sudden here's, here's Jesus and he's saying, if I don't forgive them, I'm going to get waterboarded. <laughs> I'm going to start forgiving people. How we forgive people is how we will be forgiven. It's biblically very clear. And if we forgive people in our heart, 
That's what matters. See, forgiveness is part surrender. It's part surrender. That pride, the bitterness, the chip on the shoulder, the frustration, the anger, the hatred. Surrendering that and saying, God, you need to take that. I can't do it on my own. You need to do it for me. It's part perspective. It's coming at it from a different perspective. In fact, I, I, was, I love what Psalms nineteen twelve says. It says, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. See, I think if we look at it from this perspective of people make mistakes and we take them so personally, we get so offended so easily today, especially in church. And we need to say, you know what? Maybe they just had a bad day. And I happen to be standing in the wrong place at the wrong time and giving somebody the benefit of the doubt, a different perspective makes forgiveness easier. Not saying what they did isn't wrong or that they didn't wrong you, but let's look at it from a different perspective. Forgiveness is part of a process. What does the Bible say? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Maybe instead of running away from our enemies, those that haven't forgiven us, maybe we should talk to them. Maybe we should try to reconcile with them. You know, the Bible says that we're in the ministry of reconciliation. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should be working on making things right with people that have wronged you. It might be from years ago. But we all have those people, don't we? Forgiveness is part gratitude. Gratitude for what, for what forgiveness has been offered to us. Gratitude for, for the mercy shown to us. Gratitude for, most importantly, what Christ did for us on the cross. See, he gave his life for us. And we should be very grateful for that. Here's the final clip of Jet Li and Dolph Lundgren in their kind of manly way making up. Check this out. So they forgave each other. Now, it's in a weird kind of expendables way, but they forgave each other. There's a story of a, of a, of a song that was written, and um, it's a song called Forgiveness by Matthew West. And, it, and the, the, the story behind the song is pretty incredible. So it's about a lady named Renee Napier who, um, well, I'll just read what she wrote. I never understood why God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, the son he wanted for so long. I also always hoped he would never require such a sacrifice of me. Once my first child, his son, was born, I really couldn't understand how Abraham just did what God told him to do. The love a parent has for a child is like no other. God also blessed me with three daughters, the last two being identical twins. I love my children with all my heart and could never imagine living without one of them. On May 11, 2002, a 24-year-old drunk driver named Eric killed one of my twins, Megan, and one of her friends, Lisa. Both girls 20 years old. This was devastating to all, all the families involved and to countless friends who mourn the loss of these precious girls. But it's also a story of forgiveness and healing. Because Renee's family and Lisa's family chose to forgive Eric. In fact, 
when he was sentenced, the judge was going to sentence him to a 22-year prison sentence. And they went to his sentencing and they appealed to the judge and they said, Judge, we have forgiven this man that took our precious children away. We've forgiven him in our hearts. Please reduce his sentence. He got a reduced sentence to 11 years instead of 22 years for killing three people. Most of us would say he gets what he deserves. Not them. In fact, Renee tours around the country talking about DUI, drunk driving. And she shows a video clip of Eric at her presentations and shows a clip of him sharing how their forgiveness changed his life radically and he became a follower of Jesus inside prison walls because a family forgave him. 11 years ago, he was sentenced. He gets out of prison very soon. And when Renee goes on the road in 2016, Eric, the man that killed her kid, is going to be traveling with her on the road, sharing what forgiveness did in his life. See, forgiveness is part surrender, part perspective, part process, part gratitude, but it's all heart. If you don't forgive someone in your heart, all those other things don't matter. It's all heart. A person may think, we may think our ways are the right ways. But the Lord, He weighs our heart. We know where our heart is. We know where it is. God knows where it is. It's about forgiveness in the heart. That's what really matters. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we don't deserve what you did for us on the cross. We don't deserve an ounce of forgiveness for the wrongs that we have done, the immeasurable sin in our lives. But Lord, I stand here today and I thank you for the, for the forgiveness that you've given me. And Lord, I know that there are people in my life that I need to reconcile with in my heart. And I pray for your guidance. And I know there are people in here today, Lord, that have that same burden. That they have bitterness and anger and frustration and even hatred in their heart. Maybe even towards somebody sitting in this room. Father, we give these things over to you today and ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can find it in our heart to forgive our brother, our sister, our friend, our family member, our coworker. I pray, Lord, that you would do this in my own life. And I thank you for who you are and what you did for us on that cross. In Jesus' name. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. 
Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.